So in the last episode, I took you mostly to tropical waters, but this episode, we're going to get a little bit more wintry. I'm going to talk about some animals that live almost exclusively in the southern hemisphere, penguins. And that's why penguins and polar bears don't get along, because they're polar opposites. Because polar bears live in the northern hemisphere and penguins... Okay, moving on. Now, depending on who you ask, opinions vary in this regard. There's either 17 to 20 different species of penguins, but only one, the Galapagos penguin, is found north of the equator. And to be fair, that's only because one of the islands where they live crosses the equator, so the ones that live on the northernmost end of this particular island have the distinction of being the only penguins in the northern hemisphere. But all penguins spend roughly half their lives on land and half in the sea, and they're adapted to survive in some of the harshest conditions that the planet Earth has to offer. So zip up your coat and put on your warmest boots, because we're heading to Antarctica to learn more about those flightless fowls, penguins. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, and this is the Dispatches from the Forest podcast. Now, let me digress for a minute right off the bat, just because I think it's interesting. The scientific classification Pinguinus impenis, which translates to penguin without flight feathers, actually refers to a now extinct bird called the great auk. The word penguin first appeared in literature in the 1700s as a synonym for the great auk. The great auk was a flightless aquatic bird, but it lived in the northern Atlantic, and it looked remarkably similar to the birds we now know as penguins, which is why when European explorers, who were familiar with the great auk, saw penguins, they called them by the same name, although penguins and auks are not closely related at all. This is an example of what's called convergent evolution, when similar adaptive features evolve in different species. Now, the great auk, given its northern hemisphere range, was almost certainly hunted by polar bears, but it went extinct in the mid-1800s, primarily due to humans hunting them for their down in order to make pillows. You heard that correctly. Humans drove this bird to extinction for a more comfortable night's sleep. In the Antarctic, penguins have no natural land predators, although some predatory birds may feed on eggs and hatchlings. As a result, penguins have very little fear of people and may approach to within a few feet of Antarctic visitors. This tendency might have proved fatal for the penguins as it did for other flightless birds like the dodo and the great auk, which were wiped out centuries ago by ship crews who took them for food and the aforementioned pillow stuffing. But Antarctic penguins got lucky. The dangerously rough seas and harsh climate of the Antarctic made it a penguin haven by preventing humans from setting foot there until the 1800s. But penguins have been around for a long time. The oldest known penguin species date back about 62 million years. Found in New Zealand, fossils of this species show that it looked something like a loon with short wings adapted for diving and not for flight. The largest known penguin species, the uncreatively named giant penguin, lived about 37 million years ago. It stood over five and a half feet tall and weighed roughly 200 pounds. Penguins are superbly adapted to life in the water. 
Their wings have evolved to become flippers, useless for flying, but in the water, penguins are incredibly agile. A swimming penguin actually looks in many ways like other birds do in flight. Gen 2 penguins are the fastest underwater birds in the world, capable of reaching speeds of about 22 miles an hour when hunting for food or escaping predators. Like most animals that are adapted to be great swimmers, penguins are not nearly as capable when it comes to moving on land. Penguins waddle on their feet, or to move faster across rocky terrain, they do a two-footed hop. Penguins also do something called tobogganing, sliding on their bellies across the snow, using their feet to propel and steer themselves. I gotta say, if I was a penguin, tobogganing would, without a doubt, be my preferred method of getting around on land. All penguins are camouflaged with what's called countershading. They have black backs and wings and white fronts. A predator looking up from below would have a hard time distinguishing between the penguin's white belly and the reflective surface of the water. Likewise, a predator looking down from above would have trouble telling the difference between the penguin's black back and the darkness below it. Now, penguins are carnivores. Most penguins feed on krill, fish, squid, crustaceans, and other sea life that they catch with their bills and swallow whole while swimming. Penguins have spiny tongues and powerful jaws to grip slippery prey. Penguins will drink fresh water if it's available, but they can also drink seawater if fresh water isn't available. Not to mention the fact that when you hunt by swimming in the ocean and swallowing your prey whole, swallowing some seawater is pretty much inevitable. But like sea turtles, penguins have a gland called the supraorbital gland. This gland filters the salt out as the bird takes in seawater through its beak. The resulting salty brine is then expelled through the beak and nasal passages, often making the penguin look like it has a runny nose. Penguins will shake their heads or sneeze to help get the brine out. The supraorbital glands are very efficient, and the expelled brine can be five times saltier than the penguin's other body fluids. To survive in cold environments, penguins have a few strategies that, if you've listened to recent episodes of this podcast, might seem familiar. First of all, they have a thick layer of insulating feathers to help keep them warm. They preen their feathers frequently, distributing oil from a gland above the tail throughout their feathers to keep them waterproof. Not only that, but they have a mechanism for countercurrent heat exchange, something I talked about in episode 37 on reindeer. A penguin's flippers have at least three branches of the axillary artery, which allows cold blood returning from the flippers to be heated by blood that is already warm from the body, which ultimately limits heat loss from the flippers. Penguins can also control blood flow to their extremities, reducing the amount of blood that gets cold, but still keeping their extremities from freezing. But beyond physiological adaptations, penguins have developed social behaviors to help them contend with the extreme temperatures. In the extreme cold of the Antarctic winter, the females, known as hens, are usually at sea hunting for food, leaving the males, known as cocks, to brave the weather by themselves. The cocks will huddle together for warmth, rotating positions to make sure that each one gets a turn in the center of the group. Now, technically speaking, a group of penguins on land is called a waddle, while a group in the water is called a raft, which, when you think about it, means that a group of male penguins huddling together for warmth can legitimately be called, that's right, a waddle of cocks. Hey, don't blame me, it's science. But your brain just erased Great Aunt Edna's birthday to make room for that piece of knowledge. You're welcome. 
Incidentally, Waddle of Cox would also make a great band name. Everybody welcome to the stage, Waddle of Cox. <sighs> woo I love you, Waddle of Cox. Come on, you know I'm right. Anyways, let's talk about some specific penguin species. The smallest living penguins in the world are the little blue penguin and the Australian little penguin. Once they were thought to be the same species, but recent research indicates that they're actually different, but closely related species. These little waddlers are about a foot tall and weigh an average of just over three pounds. Little blue penguins are native to New Zealand, while Australian little penguins live along Australia's southern coast and a limited area of southeast New Zealand. Little penguins feed on fish, cephalopods like squid, and crustaceans, for which they travel and dive extensively, including going to the sea floor. But unlike larger penguins, they don't dive very deep or very long. Half of their dives are only about six and a half feet deep, and average dive time is less than 30 seconds. The deepest and longest recorded dive by a little penguin was to a depth of around 220 feet and lasted about a minute and a half. In captivity, these penguins can live to be over 20 years old, but in the wild, average lifespan is only about six and a half years. Females reach sexual maturity at two years of age, males at three. Breeding happens during spring and summer when the ocean is most productive and food is plentiful. Between June and August, males come ashore to renovate or dig new burrows and display to attract a mate for the season. Little penguins, like many penguins, remain faithful to their partner during the breeding season and while hatching eggs. The penguin pair shares incubating and chick-rearing duties. The female generally lays one to two eggs, which are incubated for about five weeks. After hatching, it's another seven to eight weeks until the chicks leave the nest. Little penguins potentially can have two or even three clutches per year, the only penguin species capable of more than one per season. Like most penguins, little penguins are diurnal, spending the large part of their day at sea foraging for food. During the breeding and chick-rearing season, little penguins leave their nests at sunrise, forage for food throughout the day, and return to their nests just after dusk to feed their chicks. So sunlight, moonlight, and the presence of artificial lights can impact attendance to the colony. The birds tend to come ashore in small groups to provide some defense against predators, which might otherwise pick off individuals. Seals, sea lions, sharks, and barracudas all may prey on adults at sea, while snakes and reptiles might prey on eggs and chicks. These native predators have a diverse diet and are not a threat to little penguin populations, but introduced predators present the greatest terrestrial risk to little penguins and include cats, dogs, rats, foxes, and particularly ferrets. Other threats include the old standards, habitat loss to development, getting hit by cars and boats, getting caught in trash or fishing nets, oil spills, and intentional killing by humans. The most abundant penguin species in the world is the macaroni penguin, with over 18 million individuals. Given that population size, it's not surprising that they also have the largest and densest breeding colonies, with over 100,000 penguins per colony. Their breeding range is the sub-Antarctic to the Antarctic Peninsula, and given this population size, it's also not too surprising that they consume more marine life annually than any other species of seabird. It's estimated that they eat 9.2 million tons of krill every year. Macaroni penguins stand just over 2 feet tall and weigh an average of about 12 pounds. 
They have a distinctive yellow crest, which is how they got their name, but probably not for the reason you think. So let's digress a little bit again. In 18th century England, macaroni was a term used, not always nicely, to describe a subculture of wealthy British men who dressed and spoke in a way that took normal fashion to an extreme. Think things like tall powdered wigs with long curls topped with a hat. Although, interestingly, the term really does trace back to the pasta. Being wealthy, many of these men went on trips around Europe as young adults, Italy being a key destination. And they took a liking to the pasta macaroni, which was not well known in England at the time. These well-traveled young men were said to belong to the macaroni club and began to label anything fashionable as very macaroni. Um, so when Yankee Doodle stuck a feather in his cap and called it macaroni, that was actually an insult to the British colonists, implying that they didn't know what fashion was. So back to the penguins. That's why English sailors, when they saw its distinctive yellow crest, named this penguin the macaroni penguin. And there goes Great Uncle Bert's birthday from your memory banks. Again, you're welcome. When diving for food, macaroni penguins average between 50 and 200 feet in depth and about two minutes per dive. Their dives are V-shaped and no time is spent on the bottom. Like some other penguin species, they're known to swallow small rocks. It's been speculated that they do this to either provide ballast for deep dives or to grind up food, especially the shells of crustaceans, which make up a large part of their diet. Seals and orcas are the primary predators of adult macaroni penguins. Macaroni penguins molt once per year, shedding their old feathers and growing new ones. About two weeks before the molt, they'll accumulate fat since, once they start to shed their old feathers, they can't get back in the water to hunt for food. It takes three to four weeks to complete the molt. After the molt is complete, they go back to the sea and return to their colonies to mate. Macaroni penguins breed in October and lay eggs in November. Keep in mind that in Antarctica, this is the spring and beginning of summer. Macaroni penguins live 12 to 15 years in the wild. Female macaroni penguins mate at about age 5, males at age 6. The female will generally lay two eggs each season, with the second egg being slightly larger than the first. When the second, larger egg is laid, the female tips the smaller egg out of the nest. Only the larger egg is incubated. The task of incubating the egg is divided into three roughly equal sessions of around 12 days each over a five-week period. In the first session, the parents take turns incubating the egg. In the second session, the male goes to sea, leaving the female alone. But he returns for the third session, and the female goes to sea, and doesn't come back until the chick is hatched. During breeding, both sexes go without eating for considerable periods of time. The male fasts for about five weeks after his arrival on the breeding grounds until he returns to the sea, and for another five weeks or so after his return from the sea for the final incubation session. The female fasts for about six weeks from her arrival on the breeding ground until she returns to the sea. Both adults will lose 35 to 40 percent of their body weight during this period. After the egg hatches, the male cares for the newly hatched chick. For about 25 days, he'll protect his offspring and help keep it warm, since only a few of its feathers have grown in at this time. The female brings food to the chick every day or two. When they're not being protected by the adult male penguins, the chicks form crushes to help keep warm and stay protected. 
Once their adult feathers have grown in, at about 60 to 70 days, they're ready to go out to sea on their own. Macaroni penguins leave their breeding colonies in April or May, again the Antarctic autumn, and disperse into the ocean. They'll spend the next six months at sea, not coming ashore at all. Studies have documented macaroni penguins traveling over 6,000 miles during that time. So the last species I want to tell you about is the largest of the penguins, the emperor penguin. Emperor penguins stand just under three and a half feet tall and weigh about 100 pounds. They have a circumpolar distribution in the Antarctic, found exclusively between 66 and 77 degrees south latitude. Emperor penguins are the deepest diving of all the penguins. While hunting, emperor penguins can remain submerged for about 20 minutes and dive to a depth of 1,700 feet. It has several adaptations to facilitate this, including an unusually structured hemoglobin that allows it to function at low oxygen levels, solid bones, and the ability to reduce its metabolism and shut down non-essential organ functions. The emperor penguin is the only penguin that breeds during the Antarctic winter, the coldest environment of any bird species. Air temperatures can reach well below negative 40 degrees Fahrenheit, winds can blow nearly 90 miles an hour, and the water temperature is around 29 degrees. Breeding colonies are usually in areas where ice cliffs and icebergs provide some protection from the wind, on stable pack ice near the coast and up to 11 miles offshore. Emperor penguins will trek between 30 and 75 miles over the ice to the breeding colonies, which can contain several thousand individuals. The female lays a single egg, which is incubated by the male for just over two months, while the female returns to the sea to feed. When she returns, the parents take turns foraging at sea and caring for their chick in the colony. When an emperor penguin mother loses a chick, they'll sometimes attempt to steal another mother's chick, usually unsuccessfully, because other females in the vicinity will help the defending mother in keeping her baby. Like other penguins, emperor penguins don't mate for life. This is a common misconception, but they do have only one mate per season and are faithful to that mate during the breeding season. Emperor penguins can live 20 years in the wild. So some final fun facts about penguins. You might be wondering, in these large penguin breeding colonies, how are mated pairs able to find both each other and their chicks in a sea of nearly identical penguins? And the answer is acoustically. They can actually identify each other's calls out of the thousands of other penguins calling around them. Scientists literally call this the cocktail party effect. It's like when you're in a room of noisy conversation and you hear your name mentioned from across the room. This ability ensures parents feed their own chicks and not somebody else's. And emperor penguins have the widest variation in individual calls of all the penguins. Vocalizing emperor penguins use two frequency bands simultaneously. Chicks use a frequency modulated whistle to beg for food and to contact their parents. Penguins are also one of the many animals that are known to form long-lasting same-sex relationships. These couples have been documented adopting abandoned eggs and incubating them as their own. And with that, my fine feathered but flightless friends will end this episode. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Make sure to work the phrase waddle of cocks into conversation this week. Also, please make sure to like and subscribe to the podcast. If you're enjoying the podcast and want to support future episodes, please consider becoming a patron. You can do that by going to patreon.com 
forward slash dispatches from the forest. Donations can also be sent via PayPal to dispatchesfromtheforest at gmail.com, which is also where you can email me with questions, comments, and suggestions for future episodes. For additional content, follow Dispatches from the Forest on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, reminding you to go outside and get dirty. Dispatches from the Forest podcast is a production of Dispatches from the Forest and may not be used or rebroadcast whole or in part without express written permission. <laughs> Waddle of cocks. <laughs>